Well, this morning, as I've already mentioned, we are jumping back to the book of 1 Corinthians. We had been on a 10-chapter run through the book, taking larger chunks, uh, uh, not going verse by verse by any means, um, but going in larger topical chunks uh, through the book. And we took up 1 Corinthians because it gives us a chance to hear, for me to preach, for us to discuss um, very particular matters. Um, today is no exception as we deal with uh, women and head coverings. You don't, you don't often preach on that, you know. And I have to confess, uh, there are texts in the Bible which you, which you did not have to preach on. And this is one of them, not because, oh, the, the uh, subject is difficult or challenging per se, but the text in this particular case is so difficult and challenging. But again, this text, like so many of the others, uh, deal with very particular things. And you heard that in the end of 1 Corinthians 11 as well with the Lord's Supper, like a very particular instance. Uh, so when we read 1 Corinthians, we have to keep this in mind. Uh, we've thought about this earlier. You, you can tell that the Corinthians have written to Paul. And they're bringing up very specific questions. And he sometimes says things. And if you're not reading carefully in 1 Corinthians, you can hear the things he's saying as Paul's words when really what he's doing is repeating something that was said to him in a letter. You know, it is not right for a man to touch a woman. He didn't say that. That was something the Corinthians wrote to him. That's what is being said. And, and he then takes that and says, well, let me, let me respond to that. Uh, so it, there's a challenge in reading 1 Corinthians because... Of all the of all the letters in in Paul, uh, this one just is is right down in the nitty gritty, the weeds of church life. But I but that's the beauty of it. It's the beauty of it. It, it reminds us that Christianity, which can many times get up in the clouds, and and should be because it they're just majestic, glorious, big ideas also has implications right down in the day-to-day -day interactions of God's people. Like you and I have to think, and I think 1 Corinthians challenges us to do this, how do we take the big truths we know about Christianity and apply them at work, at home, my daily routines, my interactions with my friends, my interactions with my enemies, my interaction with my brothers and sisters in church. Like, like the, the Christianity matters there. If it doesn't work itself out there, it's an abstract belief system. And that's not what, that's not what Christian, Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is truth, and we have to live in the truth, and that applies to us. So we've been thinking about that just to kind of get our feet back wet again in, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. You'll remember also, perhaps, or let me remind you, that we have, as we made our way through 1 Corinthians, we have been using as like our <coughs> harmony, uh, using as our uh, a, a verse to kind of give us a lens by which to look at the book, Romans 12. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. And we've taken that text and said, yeah, let's let that be the key that we, again, kind of sing uh, 1 Corinthians in, because Paul is really coming to the Corinthians, and he is essentially challenging them to think Christianly, not Corinthian Corinthianly, right? Not Greekly. That is, brothers and sisters in Corinth, 
You need to look at your life, even down to the nitty gritty, and think about it as a Christian living in Greece, not as a Greek who happens to be Christian. That's a very important thing that I want to, because we're going to talk about a very particular thing, okay? The issue of what the women were doing as they were coming into public worship and how they were representing Christ in, in public and so forth. And, and we have a very specific thing here with, with head coverings, whatever is meant by this. And there's complexities there. But as we look at that very particular thing, the broader uh, point that we are to remember is that in all things, our public representation of Christ and our public vocation and our relationship with one another. If you'll remember, if we could just go back like a couple chapters, you'll remember that what we've been talking about coming into this was how we eat. How we eat? Do we eat this meat or don't we eat this meat? Well, was that sacrifice to idols? Well, wait a second. Where'd you get it? Where are you eating it? Who's in my presence? Like all these things matter. And Paul says, yeah, yeah. You can't just come to a meal like a Greek. You can't just come to the meal like a Corinthian. and say, well, I'm a Corinthian. We, we, this is where we have our business dealings here at a, a temple. I don't know. What do you want me to do? This is where we've always held our business meetings. Yep. Yeah, okay, fine. But you're a Christian businessman now. You're a Christian Corinthian. You're not a Corinthian Christian. You're a Christian who happens to live in Corinth. And so now you've got to come to that and think, okay, what's the Christian thing to do here? Is this going to offend my brother? Is this going to cause my sister to sin? Is this going to cause me to sin? It's a whole new world of questions now. So do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. Don't fall into the ruts, the Corinthian ruts that are there for you and that you grew up in. It's very easy to be a Corinthian for you. It's very easy for you and me to be Americans. It comes so naturally for most of us, I assume. Right? Or whatever culture. It doesn't matter. Pick the culture. That's the, it doesn't matter which one. Our culture, just these very easy ruts and comfort zones that we fall into without asking questions. And Paul is challenging the Corinthians here to think Christianly, not, uh, not Corinthianly. Okay, now, all that then brings us to the text we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul begins, and we're looking just at the first part here on head coverings. Well, the, the, the title here is head coverings. Whether or not uh, we, we, we say that uh, the whole thing is about that is another story. Um, Paul begins the, the text, though, though um, you see there above the thing, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Um, Paul begins with a word of praise to the Corinthians. He likes to do this, if, if you remember back, where he likes to give a little word of encouragement. Okay, he, give, he gives one verse of encouragement before he gives basically 30 verses of a smackdown. Okay. <laughs> But it, it, that, that's how you see, this is just good rhetoric. This is how you kind of get them to lean in. <laughs> you know, you, they, they lean in and then you can give it to them. Um, but I, I praise you, brethren, uh, that you remember me in all things. And you keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So I, I, I gave you habits and I gave you things to do. And okay, well done. Uh, well done, you've remembered them. But, <laughs> but verse three, but, uh, and they're always like, oh. You know, when Paul, when Paul comes out with that, but uh, they know, okay, here it comes. 
Um, but I want you to know, and now he launches in to this discussion about men and women and the particular issue, as it was read to you, and you already know, is that of a woman having her head covered. Um, now, when you read the commentators on this, I mean, they are all over the place, and each of them is giving you, here's four possibilities of what this means, and here's four possibilities of what this means. And they will even say, uh, uh, a commentator I greatly respect on this, uh, you know, uh, Douglas Moose says, says, in the end, we don't know. So when commentators do that to you, you go, oh, great, thanks. Like, you know, you don't have to get up and preach this. I do. Um, so one question off the bat on this text is what do they mean by head coverings? Now, at first we go, well, it's obvious. It's covering your head. Yeah, but it's not so obvious. Okay, it's, it's not so obvious when you start reading and you think about it culturally. Now, I know, I remember when I was in seminary, uh, R.C. Sproul's wife, Vesta, uh, always wore a hat in church. And... Uh, and they were convinced by this passage that it was saying that women need to literally have their heads covered when they, so with a hat. Uh, and, and there are many, there are church traditions and church communities where women wear hats and cover their head when they come into worship. So R.C., and I, if I remember correct, he didn't say that he, 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 that Vesta was doing this because R.C. was calling her to do it. I think Vesta was convinced of it uh, but it was from it was from this passage. But there are many commentators who believe that's not what's going on here. That the issue going on here is one of hairstyle, believe it or not. And you get that from later in the text when Paul talks about nature and he goes, don't you see even from nature that for a man to have long hair and for a woman to have short hair is just disordered? And, um, and so it has led many people to say the issue that's going on here is one of how a woman wears her hair when she comes into public worship or when she is publicly representing Christ or something like this. Um, now, here's what, here's what we can say, whether it's how a woman wears her hair or whether or not she actually was to have a covering, maybe a shawl up over her head. And, and men the opposite way, because he says, you know, in this text, uh, hey, it's not right when a man prophesies or prays publicly that he have his head covered. And uh, women, it's inappropriate if you, when you prophesy or pray, uh, uh, don't have your head covered. So the two are supposed to do the opposite thing. Either way, let me just make this statement out on the front side of this text. And that is, I really want to encourage you as we continue through this text, not to be caught up on the particularity, okay, of whether it's a head covering or whether it's a hairstyle. And here's what I mean by that. I believe in either case, whatever Paul's talking about here, and I'm telling you right now, no one knows. Okay, they don't know if he's actually talking about women wearing hats or shawls, or whether he's talking about hairstyle, there's just, so that's okay. But that doesn't that does not affect our interpretation of the text, and here's why. Because what Paul is dealing with, and this we know, is he is dealing with a Corinthian cultural phenomenon, okay? He's dealing with an issue in Corinth, right? You talk about not being conformed to the pattern of this world. He is dealing with a problem, a cultural phenomenon in Corinth that is having an effect within the church. So whether it's, well, it's important women for you to have your heads covered because to uncover them, not to have them covered, 
means something in Corinth, okay? Or whether it's temple prostitutes or whether it was women, uh, there, were, there were women in, in Corinth, celebrity women who were wearing their hair in a particular way as an act of sort of rebellion against the mores of the culture. And in you wearing your hair a certain way, you're identifying with them. However Paul means it, he is calling us to be concerned about within our culture, the messages we send. And in this case, he's particularly concerned about living within a culture where we send messages out of conformity to the world in such a way that communicates an undermining of the order of God. Okay, so he's concerned about us coming to public worship, publicly representing Christ in such a way in which we conform to the pattern of the world that undermines the order of God, that misrepresents in our testimony what we claim to be representing. Now, in this case, it's the distinction between men and women, which, by the way, not an insignificant issue within our society. I mean, Paul is here concerned about women who are coming to worship in such a way that they are erasing a distinction between them and men. And men possibly who might be erasing the distinction between them and women. And in the issue in Corinth, it's covering the head, whether that's a the way they wear their hair or whether that's the way they dress. It doesn't frankly matter to us. They, in Corinth, are running the risk of doing so in a way that is erasing the distinction between men and women. Now, when you read this text, naturally, I think because of our because of our contemporary concerns with equality, our contemporary concerns with um, yeah equity, um, we tend to read passages like this and very quickly hear them as issues of subordination, issues of authority, hierarchy, and so forth. And and I can get that. There's a lens in which you can come to the text that way. But again, I don't think that's what's going on here. Well, Paul is calling us again, take up the theme we've been looking at. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And in this case, we've dealt with food. We've dealt with lawsuits. We've dealt with this. We've dealt with wisdom and how we handle teaching. Now we're dealing with the distinction between men and women. Do not live as the Greeks in such a way that you erase the distinction between men and women. And Americans, of course, we need to have ears to hear this because we are living in a society in which there is a direct rebellion against God by rebelling against the very natural distinctions that God has established in men and women. And it's not simple like head coverings now. Now it is literally like the erasure of gender. Now, it would be interesting, and maybe we can discuss in Sunday school, like what, ha what not that Paul didn't have to deal with this. There was a femininity and there was um, women, you know, I think there were gender confusion and gender distinctions in erasures in Paul's age as well, similar to what we have, even in the transgender movements of our day. I don't think these are new. What's new is the radical lengths to which people can go to act upon that. But this is not a new phenomenon in that way. But what we need to have ears to hear when we read this passage 
are ways in which we as a church, we as individuals, can participate in that erasure of the distinction between men and women. Now, let's let's just kind of go back and look at the text. The issue here is one of praying and prophesying and men having their heads uncovered while women have their heads covered. And Paul in verse 6, now you get in, if you notice in your text there, in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, uh, no, not 9, excuse me, 10, they all begin 4, 4, 4, 4, as Paul is prone to do. <laughs> and just make these logical arguments that you really need, you know, a full big whiteboard to chart out because there's a lot of 4, therefore, because of, you know, could it be, you know. So, so here, uh, 4, if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. Uh, but it is shameful for a woman to be shorn, so have her head shaved, so let her be covered. So if he's talking about actual covering of a woman's head, be, you know, having her hair up, having a certain hairstyle, whatever it is, he's saying for that to be undone, let's say one thing wearing the hair down or just having her head exposed is a shameful thing. He's just simply saying it's also culturally shameful for a woman to have her head shaved which is in, in many ways, it's a, it's a way to shame a woman through many ages to do that. And Paul says, if that's shameful, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the same thing. Either one of these is shameful for a woman. So if you're going to have your head uncovered, you might as well shave it. Oh, he's, I could never shave that. I could never shave my head. That would be shameful. Well, this is just as shameful if you are wearing your hair a certain way that culturally speaking, brings dishonor to you, dishonor to your husband, dishonor to your church. And, and through that, then dishonor to Christ. Verse 7, for, so the argument continues, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Now here again, the ears that you have when you come to a text like this are so culturally shaped, right? So when we hear women were created for men, it's just like our society is just like ready to, you know, just that's, you know, it can't handle something like that. But we should not be hearing this with American ears. We should be hearing this with biblical ears. And biblically, I think, it allows us to see what, what Paul is talking about here. When he says that woman is the glory of the man and that man was not made for woman, but woman for man, he's not saying for in a sense of so that she's at man's disposal. Like that's exactly how our society, if we just went publicly and said, hey, just so you know here, you know, I go out on, on MSNBC and I say, uh, you know, hey, just so you know, man was not created for women. Just so you all know, women were created for men. It would just forget about it. I'd be tarred and feathered and, you know, who knows what would happen to me. You'd never see me again, okay? But I go, no, 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 you're misunderstanding, though. You're misunderstanding. Uh, what, I, what I mean by four in this case, I wouldn't be able to get that out. But, um, but what I would mean, what Paul means here is when woman, and now this, here we have to, again, listen with biblical ears. We've got to go back to Genesis chapter 2. And what was, what was woman created for? Well, men and women, we know, you know, God said in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. So in the image of God, he made them male and female. He created them. 
So that's, that's all we get in Genesis 1. But then in Genesis 2, when he zooms in on that creation, we actually see that the way it actually went down was God created man. And he created man and then said it's not good for man to be alone. I.e., man in and of himself is incomplete. Man needs a helpmate. Man cannot be the image and God created man to be the image and glory of God, but man can't be it. Now, this is not news to God, right? God's not saying, golly, you know, what's, I left something out here. What, what's, what's missing? And then he creates the animals and Adam gets to go out and name them and look for a helpmate. And of course, there's none able to help him because man was called to image God in Genesis 1 by being fruitful, by being a creator, a little sub-creator, filling the earth and ruling over it. And man looks at all the animals and there's nothing suitable here. He names them all. He classifies them. He gets in order what God created. But there, uh, lo, there's nothing, no, no one here suitable to be a helpmate. And so God puts Adam to sleep. And from his wounded side, he creates his bride. He creates Eve. He brings Eve. And when Adam wakes up and sees Eve, he sees, if you will, the completion of his very being. He sees the completion of his flesh. That's what even goes on. That's the poem and the, the song that he goes on. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now man, if you will, is complete. When it says woman, was created for man, it doesn't mean to be at man's beck and call. It doesn't mean to be at man's disposal. It means to complete him. Right? Man and woman, here's where as, as biblical evangelical Christians, the word we use for this is complementary, right? Complementarianism. We believe that men, and here's so here, let me give you two important elements of complementarianism that we get even right in this text. Number one, men and women are different. Right? They are different. They complement one another. And that and that and Paul says that is very important Corinthians for us to maintain. So in this cultural setting and it would be interesting to see what Paul would say if he were here and had to survey the American situation. Where would he say are these places, culturally speaking, where there we need, and as Christians, we need to maintain a distinction between men and women. A distinction. Because men and women are different. And it's in that difference, and in the fact that those differences, like two gears fit together and in so doing make something beautiful and whole and in fact something life-giving and fruit-bearing that then reveals the very nature of God. It is in this that the image of God is perfected and I don't just mean in marriage now. I don't just mean though marriage is where you see it most poignantly but in society. Right? The, the, the masculine and the feminine, feminine, the male and the female, 
these two working together make for a fruitful, productive, beautiful, God-glorifying society. Of course, marriage, it becomes fruitful in its, in its most particular way, in the, in, the, in the bringing forth of children, and in so doing, uh, uh, um, bearing the image of God, because God's the creator. And then male and female come together, and they give life. And in so doing, mimic in a glorifying way God. But man can't do that alone. It's not, again, what Paul is not saying here is woman says so that man can get his job done. No, it makes man whole. So I, I, I'm, I'm stressing this point because I want us to be careful, though I, I, know the, I know my audience, right? I know my audience here. Where I don't, I don't, I don't think we grapple with this so hard. But, but at the same time, we can't help but be Americans. We can't help but read woman was created for man and bristle. And therefore, we have to learn to hear these things, both men and women need to hear these things with biblical ears, not for the use of man, but for the completion of man. And man for the woman. Because woman, by the way, also is insufficient in and of herself. And she needs Adam, and Adam needs her. And God, in Genesis 2, I believe, draws this out in this dramatic creating Adam alone, letting him discover he's insufficient, Giving him the animals, going through this long process of naming and searching and so that he realizes, I got nothing. I can't do, God, what you've called me to do. And then puts Adam to sleep. And from there, then uh, brings forth Eve so that he's drawn it out and, and man is able to say, ah, I see. So Paul is getting after this, using the issue of head coverings using whatever exactly that means, whereas the Corinthian women were apparently erasing or participating in behavior that was minimizing, erasing the distinction between them and their husbands, them and the men of the church, and perhaps the men were as well because he he talks about the men doing it the opposite. But so that we can know for sure that Paul is also at the same time not setting some level of superiority, though there is order within the created thing. Again, we do believe, in, as the scriptures say, that, that yes, man, Mark read the passage in Ephesians 5 today, that even within the relationship of marriage, you'll hear, uh, as, as Mark read it, the beautiful issue of submission and order and yet equality in a very beautiful way. That text began, that very familiar text that also makes modern Americans squirm about wives submitting to their husbands. You will remember up in verse 20, if I'm correct, begins, or maybe it's 19, begins, submit to one another. It's like two gears, right? When when two gears turn like this, which one is submitting to the other? Which one is moving the other one? Right? They, They fit together. They work together. Now, within that, one gear is doing one thing, if, you can, if we can look at an engine or something. One gear is turning something and one gear is turning something else. One gear is being turned, one gear is turning, but they're working together. Which one's more important than the other? I don't know. Take one out, they both don't work. And Paul says that in Ephesians. Submit yourselves one to another. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. In all things as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of his church. That he does set an order, men particularly within the family, and then he applies it out to the church as well, that in his divine economy, and I didn't write it, 
It's just what God ordered, that men have a responsibility in the leadership of the church and have a certain responsibility in the family. It's not that Christina doesn't have responsibility in my family, that she is not an equal, my equal, but I do believe as the head of the family, I will have to give an account for the family that she will not have to give. She will have to give an account for how she was a wife. She will have to give an account for how she's a mom. But I will have to give an account for the family in a very unique way as the head. That's just, that's a, that's a burden, okay? That's a burden. That's not like a fist pump. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm the, I'm the head. It, that's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Christina's going, good, all right? Finally, you're going to have to answer for these things. But in that economic order within the, within the family or within the church, again, look at the equality, and that's just such a loaded term within our culture, I know, but, but look at also the equality of the thing. And you get that. Paul goes on, I think, just so that he's not being misheard, even amongst the Corinthians, in a culture where there would have been superiority. And very much the putting down of women. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman. So fine, woman is created for man. But hey, make sure you're hearing me right. That's not to say man is independent of woman. That somehow the woman is there for the use of the man. Neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman did come from man, remember he just told that story, God creates Adam, and then he creates Eve from Adam. And Paul's kind of looking at that pattern as one of, okay, so here's the order from God to man and man to woman. But then he goes, but hey, hey, hold on a second. That was a unique case. Ever since then, men have come from women, from their moms. So it's like every man has come from a woman just as women ultimately came from men. Interesting. So Paul just pumps the brakes on us and says, be careful that you're hearing me right. Yes, woman is in that sense the glory of the man. She perfects the man. But in perfecting the man, she is their one flesh. It's not she's there just to shine light on the glory of the man. No, it's her participation with the man that mankind is glorified. They're not independent of each other. Again, like the two gears. Again, man was created from woman so that, and this is where I got the, I took the, uh, the title from just to make the point of emphasis here, but all things are from God. That all things are from God. So we have our place in this structure, this, this web of authority and responsibility. We have this, from God. So let me just boil down and give you a couple takeaways from what is a complicated text. And, and again, we'll let's talk about it at Sunday school for any of you who want to stay after. A couple takeaways. Number one, whatever the women were doing in this case was bringing shame to the, now they may not have seen it, but Paul sees it, is bringing shame to the church and bringing shame to the opposite gender. I don't exactly know what it was. I just know it was happening. So whatever the cultural thing was, it was bringing shame, whether it was immodesty, you know, that was, that was bringing shame, and therefore they needed to cover their head because their head is their glory. 
You know, Paul goes on to say that your, your head is your glory. Therefore, you need to cover that up. Right. In, in some sense, that's for your husband. And as you come and you you are exposing that or you are wearing this or not wearing that, uh, it is bringing shame to your husband when you were you exist in that sense for the perfection, this union with you and your husband. So one, what can we think at affirmation? Number one, let us beware, whatever the cultural thing is, let us beware of those things which even culturally speaking can bring shame upon the church. I think that's a takeaway. Number two, let us in a society which is doing everything possible to erase the lines, whether in terms of roles, what even in terms now of gender itself, in terms of it, our very identity, doing everything possible to erase the distinction between male and female, we must be very sensitive to this and be careful that we do not participate in it. Now, how, how this affects how we relate to a transgender coworker or a transgender member of our family um, requires a lot of thought and prayer and care. We have to be careful and say, well, I can't participate in this, so I'm fine. I, I don't care what you want to be called. Here's what I'm doing. You know, we have to think these things out, okay? We have to love our neighbors, and that is very complex. I understand that. But within the life of the church and within our Christian life and within our behavior, within our speech, we have to be careful that we do not participate in the erasure of the very nature that God has established. Because it is in the very clear distinction between men and women and these two very distinct gears working together that the image of God is manifested. And I believe that to attack the image of God is really just a not-so-subtle way of attacking God himself, right? It's you hate God and so you go after the image of God. And the image of God is manifested in the complementary relationship of men and women, at least in a large part. So let us, we have to think very carefully in this day and age how we deal with that. So we must maintain the differences. But then thirdly, so beware of shame, beware of erasing the differences between male and female. But number three, let us appreciate that complementarian nature of our relationship as men and women, that indeed we are for each other's glory in that sense. We perfect each other. And in the church, there is this beautiful coming together of male and female. And again, with something we could talk about in Sunday school as well, you have women prophesying here. This is also a controversial thing in this text because you have, hey, when men when men are, are praying and prophesying in public, um, they, they need to not have their heads covered. Now, women, when you're praying and prophesying in public, like, wait, women were prophesying? So what's going on there? But notice Paul in this text, and that's we can deal with the role of women in the public ministry in Sunday school. But notice here, he, he equates both of them even in what they're doing. So there is, again, this complementarian role of those of working together where though we are distinct, there is a beautiful equality. And that beautiful equality is seen most perfectly in the Trinity. That sure, the Father sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father, Okay. The Father sends the Son. The Son says, my food and my drink is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Okay? Clear submission, if you will, in that sense. But the Son does this with zero insecurity. 
Zero sense that, well, what are you saying? Is the, fa the father is better than I am? The father is more important than I am? Zero of that. Father, my food and my drink is to do your will. And then when he does it, the father turns around and gives the whole thing back to the son. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. And this model of submission, which is mutual in the sense that the father sends the son and the son achieves a kingdom by which the father then returns it to the son. I mean, who, who was getting what there? Who's serving who? So there is order and yet there is unbelievable, beautiful equality, right? There is one, our own catechism says there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Equal in power and in glory. Yet the Father sends the Son. And the Son does the will of his Father. And yet they are equal in power and glory. And this Trinitarian image of submission and complementary equality is at the very heart of our faith. And we have to be careful that we don't slide off of that fine edge on either side where we dismiss the distinctions or where we fall into some kind of superiority. We must maintain distinction and equality, differences of roles and things to do, of glories, and yet at the same time, equal in glory together. So we see that there. So a complicated, thorny little text very enculturated. That's what makes it so difficult. The, the, the premises I'm saying are not difficult. What's difficult about the text is the particularities. So, Pastor, are you saying we need, you know, the ladies, Pastor, are you saying that we need to wear hats when we come to church next Sunday? See, that would be, I think, a misread of the text. Paul's not saying, let me lay down a principle for the church of all ages. Women must wear hats when they come to church. That's not what he's saying. I believe the points I gave you is what he's saying. Beware of shaming the church by blurring the distinctions between male and female. And so if fashion does that, that's okay. We, we want to be aware of fashion that does that. We want to be aware of hairstyles that do that. We want to be aware of anything that does that. So culture matters, but we do it in such a way in which we enjoy the complementarian equality of one another. Let's pray. Father, we live in a culture in which so many things seem topsy-turvy. Where things get turned upside down and light is called dark and dark is called light. And Father, though we might never have imagined it, male is called female and female is called male. Lord, we, we don't know how as a society to have submission and equality what it means to submit to the roles that you've given us, submit to the nature that you've established, to find our glory in the roles that you've given to us. We just don't know what that means. Equity and equality have become such idols in our society uh, that they've perverted even the lenses by which we read the scriptures so that when we hear passages like this, we tend to squirm or bristle. So Father, we pray that you would be with us. Help us, we pray, not to be conformed to the spirit of the age, the pattern of the world. Help us not to hear with American ears or to read with American eyes, but, Father, to live with Christian, biblical, spirit-filled ears and eyes. That's why you call us so often to pray for the spirit, to give ears so we may hear. Indeed, the Corinthians had this problem and we Americans have this problem. 
So be with us. May this church live and minister in such a way that the clarity of our convictions and the clarity of our trust in you cuts through the fog of our American society so that in the end you receive glory, Father, through us. We ask all these things in Christ's name.